Welcome to episode 15 of Conversation Pace. My name is Brian Rossetti, I'm the founder of V.02. In this episode, I spoke with the amazing Alvina Begay. Alvina is a private coach, registered dietitian, and is currently on the front lines of the pandemic as a nurse. She was born and raised in the small town of Ganado, Arizona on the Navajo Reservation. In this episode, we talk about her community and how and why it has been so negatively impacted by COVID-19. We discuss getting into running, which at first thought, some might think would have been unlikely growing up on the reservation, but it turns out she was raised to run and endure. We get into her transition to college and how she endured some rough patches in the sport and then went on to give back to her community as an N7 Nike ambassador. Alvina's been fortunate to work with some great coaches over the years. Combine that with her life experiences, incredible parents, and we understand why she has such a great perspective and knack for coaching and inspiring others. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Alvina, welcome to the show. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, Brian. How are you? <laughs> it's been, geez, it's been so long. I don't know how many years since we actually last saw each other when the world was uh, oh, gosh. much simpler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was at the Run Smart running camp in Flagstaff. I, I don't even remember how long that go, how long ago that was, but yeah. It was such a similar time. Yeah, much simpler. I appreciate you taking the time. I know this is, um, especially for you, a a pretty crazy time. Obviously, everyone's dealing with COVID in some respect. And um, some people have taken, you know, the brunt or have, you know, suffered far worse. And um, so we just, we understand it's a tough time. So I appreciate you. Um, taking some time to to talk with us and we want to hear what's happening so where are you right now are you in Flagstaff or you're in um, on the reservation right now Um, well I currently live on the reservation Um, I live in a town called Sahali Arizona Um, it's on the northeast uh, corner of Arizona it's about two hours northeast of Flagstaff Um, I grew up on the Navajo Reservation, so this is uh, pretty much home. Um, my parents live about 60 miles south of where I currently live. So um, in a lot of ways, it's it's really nice to be closer to them, especially um, during this time. So, so you yeah. said 60 miles. Is that... It's Ganado. Is that how you pronounce it, right? Yes, it's it's Ganado. Um, that's where I was born and raised. Um, that's where my parents still live, and that's where they have their ranch and um, still, um, still pretty much and very much home to me. Yeah, so sixty miles away, um, and you're working at the hospital now as a nurse there, or where is your work right now? Okay. Um, I work at a dialysis center in um, the reservation, on, in a reservation town or a small town called uh, Chiana. Um, that's where Canyon de Chez is located. Mm-hmm. So that's where I work right now. Um, I am still working as a dietitian right now. Um, I graduated from nursing school in December. And I was getting ready to take um, my nursing, my national nursing exam or, or the NCLEX exam. Um, 
so I've been I've been getting ready for that. Um, I found out that I was pregnant back in March. So with wow. um, so with that and COVID um, just you know starting to come up in March, we just I, I decided not to to rush um, rush being a nurse or going into the nursing field. So um, the, I'm still working as a dietitian at the dialysis center in Shinley. Wow. So congrats. This, I wasn't even thinking now that you also, <laughs> so you just became a nurse um, or you started, you graduated in December. Mm-hmm. Um, so right before, I guess there was evidence, right? When did it really pick up in China? I'm, I'm blanking on the timeline now. So we were kind of, were we aware or we, was it January we became aware of it? I'm yeah, thinking. I want to yeah, January. I think we were hearing a little bit about it in December. January, it was getting a little bit louder. Yeah. February, um, it was in Arizona, and then March, boom, it was it was here. <laughs> yeah, March is when we <clears throat> left New York. We're currently still in um, Pennsylvania. Interestingly enough, my wife got into nursing school, so she's oh, nice. currently in nursing school now. Oh gosh! But, yeah. Oh my gosh! Time? What a yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a time. Um, but yeah, no, it's um well congratulations to your wife. I'm I'm sure um yeah. I'm sure she's enjoying nursing school. Nursing school is tough, so so please do your best to support her there. <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying. Um and your mom is currently working um as a nurse. And what hospital is she in? Oh yeah. Um, so my mom is the director of nursing. Um, she is the, the, I guess the head nurse, um, in Kayenta, Kayenta, Arizona. That is near where Monument Valley is. Um, and that is where we got our first, um, that's where the first case of COVID, um, was identified was in, um, her, her facility. Um, so she, she was, uh, when it came to the res, it came to her hospital. So yeah, she's a nurse there. Um, yeah. <laughs> Does that hospital face the most cases or where, um, where's the most, uh, most cases been on the reservation? Um, I would say in that area, um, yeah. I'm trying to remember the numbers, but you know, they, the res, the, um, they do, they're, they've been doing a pretty good job of keeping a record of the numbers, um, the different uh, locations or areas on the reservation where the numbers are. So I want to say the Kayenta service unit was pretty high, followed by the Chinle, um Arizona service unit. Um, so basically what that means is the reservation is broken up into certain areas. Um, so the area that my mom's hospital is um definitely got hit, um, pretty hard. Um, and then it kind of just spread out from there. So, yeah. So I live in the Chinle service unit right now and we, um, it spread to our community and it it definitely hit us pretty hard as well. And what's the current situation? Like I know, uh, when did the peak, when did you guys reach sort of the peak? Was it this summer? Um, has it plateaued since have, have you guys made, much progress. What from what I've read, there has been progress, right? Just from more mm-hmm. mask usage and mm-hmm. distancing, which I'm sure culturally has been challenging, right? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I want to say the 
oh gosh, uh, it seemed like the numbers just kept going up for a while. And we were just, um, we kept getting, um, you know, information that, you know, it's going to plateau out soon. And it just seemed like it didn't for a while. I want to say in April, May, um, that's when we peaked. Um, you know, the numbers, you know, the, the Navajo Nation President's Office puts out, um, gives out the daily numbers. So, you know, we we would get um, Facebook updates on, you know, what the daily numbers were. Um, so, yeah, so that kept going up into April and May, um, June, maybe. I want to say, yeah, maybe we did peak in June. Um, but since then, uh, the numbers have gone down. I want to say yesterday, um, the Navajo Nation President's Office said that there were seven COVID cases um, which is, I think, the lowest, um, and no deaths. Usually they report the number of deaths as well. So there were no deaths yesterday from COVID, and they only had seven positives. But I want to say when we were in our peak, um, we were at like 400 positive cases a day. Um, wow. Wow. And um, yeah, it was, it was crazy. Um, and I read so, something, only 40 ICU beds um, in the entire community, right? Yeah, I'm not sure the exact numbers. I do know that, you know, the, our hospitals are small here. Um, you know, some facilities don't have an ICU. A lot of times they just um, fly out um, patients who are very, very sick out to Flagstaff or Albuquerque or the, the big hospitals in Phoenix. So that was happening a lot early on as, you know, if... Um, the patients were too sick or they needed ventilators, uh, they were immediately flown out to those bigger hospitals. So, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And what are the challenges? Cause you always, you read in the news and I, and I hear this from people um, when they see different racial groups, right? So when I've read that native Americans highest rate of hospitalization of any racial group and well, what are the factors and why so people understand why it's been challenging um, on the reservation? What are some of the factors that lead to that? Like, for instance, multi-generational living is common, right? So it makes it more challenging if someone brings it home, um, which could impact uh, older relatives, right? What other factors does the reservation or challenges do they face that led to such a high rate of hospitalization, you think? Um, I want to say, you know, um, first, I think the, the several things come to mind when you ask that, you know, uh, first is, um, you know, a lot of Navajo families still don't have running water and electricity. So it's harder to um, keep things clean, to take showers, um, so I know that's been a big that's been a big issue um, that I'm hearing a lot about, and especially now with the drought, you know, uh, some mm. family we didn't get a whole lot of rain this summer, so um, a lot of families are scrambling trying to get water and figure out how to get water into their homes. Um, so there's that, um, uh, you know, there's lack of. Um, Healthcare, you know, we don't have very many hospitals and healthcare services available. And the Navajo Reservation is very rural. Everything is so spread out. 
Um, so, you know, uh, I live in Sehali and we have a small um, healthcare clinic in this community. But if I need to get, you know, more extensive services or care, I have to drive to Chinle or Winderock, which is like a 30 to mm -hmm. 60 mile drive. So every, you know, and families live miles apart. So you need a car and not everybody has, you know, a, um, a reliable car. Um, grocery stores are also um, really hard to get to around here. Um, you know, we, the nearest grocery store for me is about 30, 40 miles. So if I have to, I have to, if I do go to the grocery store, I have to stock up and make sure I have enough food to last for several weeks. Whereas in Flagstaff, I could just go to the <laughs> grocery store which is about yeah. a 10 minute drive away um so yeah so there's there's those factors you know and then going back to the the no running water you know i know um you know one thing that uh, my significant other and i saw early in the summer was that you know with families not having running water um a lot of people still have to go to laundromats and you know those um mm. laundromats have a lot of people that use that use that still do their laundry there um so those places were full as well so just you know um i think yeah. lack of running water is a big a big um, issue there um and then as far as housing you know it is so hard on the reservation to build your own home you know you need to get special um you have to go through a process to get a home site lease, and that can take two years to get approval to just build your house. So there's a lot of issues just in building. Um, so, you know, a lot of times people get frustrated with that long process to just get permission to build their homes, and then they end up just getting frustrated and there's no place to live. So they move in uh, with their family members. So there's like so many issues and so many complications, and yeah. it just gets so complicated. Yeah, I was reading today, like one of the big issues now um, is the federal aid that was given. There's a deadline at the end of the year, but to solve a lot of these problems, right, there's a lot of construction would need to be, would need to take place. And there's those regulations, right? A lot of it comes down to just constructing on tribal land, right? You have to go through a bunch of hoops, which I certainly understand, but that's it presents a, a challenge in this unique situation, which is unfortunate. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, you know, there's so much red tape in just building and that's why, you know, it's so hard to, to get uh, more grocery stores built up, um, to get more jobs created on the reservation, you know, and, and it goes back to just our relationship with the federal government and, um, it just gets so complicated and so frustrating, you know, trying to move yeah. forward. And there's so many, um, there's so much, you know, regulations and red tape and just things that just seem to pop up and make it even more difficult. Yeah. So how can people help? Um, I created that virtual race this fall, the 10 K to try and raise money. I, I liked, um, the Navajo Hopi Solidarity uh, Organization. It seemed like what was interesting about them was they were independent, they were all volunteers, and they were focused on really helping out homes where it was a grandparent um, 
you know, raising kids. So that was, it seemed like their focus. So I liked their approach, but a lot of times people want to donate, but it's hard to determine like what's the best use, what's going to have the biggest impact. So do you have any, any thoughts on that, on where people can look or is there a better way that people can support raise awareness? Um, I think, you know, I do like that. Um, I'm forgetting how to say the name again, the Hopi Nava, um, the group. <laughs> yeah, the, the, um, it's Navajo Hopi Solidarity. Yes, the Navajo Hopi Solidarity Group. Um, they just seem like they're a good group of um, people um, with good character. <laughs> you know, I for me personally, like if I'm going to donate money, you know, I, I definitely want to know where my money is going and how it's going to be spent, and I want it. I want to know that it is really being used to help uh, help those in need. So I, I feel like with this group, that is what they're doing. Um, so. I haven't been so much, uh, I haven't followed them as much as I usually do in the last week or so. So um, I think supporting them is a really good um, way to help the cause. Um, And I think just getting educated, you know, um, I think there's a lot of stereotypes about Native Americans that we still live in teepees, that we um, that we don't exist anymore. And I think if people can get can educate themselves on the different um, tribes and um, indigenous groups in America and to really read into the history of our, our people. I think that helps too. And then just realizing, um, you know, we've, we are a minority group and, you know, because of our relationship with the government in the past, you know, um, we face issues. We continue to fight for issues and for rights in, into even this day and age. And we're still trying to, you know, get the respect that we feel that we deserve. So I think just, you know, self-educating ourselves on, on, on true Native American history would, would be helpful as well. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I I think I can see a lot of that happening now. Hopefully that's a positive thing that's happening um, at this point in time with um, the protests in terms of racial justice and and the pandemic. Because honestly, I've heard this before. That's why I asked before about the the rate of hospitalization, because I get the sense from some people and it's just sort of lack of awareness. I don't think they mean it in, in a harmful way, but there's really a lack of awareness. It's almost like they think the virus as a preference, like a racial preference, and they, they really don't understand, um, you know, sort of the, the racial um, justice issues when it comes to, you know, infrastructure and access to, you know, education, and like you talked about, the fact how many people know that access to running water is still an issue in the U.S. Um, people get kind of get stuck in their bubble. So um, mm-hmm. I think it's a great point. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that people can get stuck in their in their bubbles, and um, and that 
you know, and that definitely holds us back in, in some situations. Um, so yeah, I, I, I agree that, you know, this is, in, in this time, like I've been trying to be more, um, positive and I try to see the silver lining and things. And, you know, even though this is a, a crazy time and there's a lot of things that, you know, I haven't been able to do, um, you know, I try to think about things that I'm grateful for. And, you know, as, as crazy as this time is, I do agree that, you know, um, a lot of um, awareness is being brought to the racial injustices in this country and in the world. So, you know, that's um, yeah. you know, one thing to, to, I guess, to be positive about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So talk a little bit about growing up in, in Ganado. So Ganado is, so people understand, it's a chapter of Navajo Nation, correct? So what is what does chapter mean? Because I've never, um, I don't, I think most people aren't familiar with that framing. <clears throat> Um, uh, chapter, um, it's, it's, I guess for me, it's like, it's, it's an old school, um, word for community yeah. on the reservation. So, uh, I guess it's just the Ganado community and they have these little, um, community houses or these community buildings in each reservation town. And it's kind of like a meeting hall. That's where people meet to discuss, um, issues that are going on in the community and try to, um, I guess, uh, deal with them, solve them, talk about mm -hmm. them. Um, so yeah, so we have a, one of those little, those buildings in our community. We call those the chapter houses. Um, but yeah, Ganado chapter would all, would, would definitely be the, the community of Ganado. Um, my town is very small. Uh, my, <laughs> you know, compared to a lot of the reservation towns, my town is very small. Uh, I don't, we don't have a stoplight. Uh, we have, uh, one gas station through town that goes through town. Um, it's just, uh, it, it's probably, it probably takes like two minutes to drive through my town. Um, but <laughs> the one thing that I really, love about my town is that we have a lake, we have hills, we have endless dirt roads. Hmm. Uh, we are at 7,000 feet in elevation. And for me, being a lifelong runner, that is like a runner's paradise. So I just feel very fortunate that I uh, was raised in that in Ganado because I feel like um, it really... Um, it, you know, it really set the, it really set me up to be a, yeah. <laughs> so. What did you guys speak Navajo, um, growing up in the household or was it English? Um, it, it was both. Um, uh, my dad's first language is Navajo. So he spoke to my siblings and I mostly in Navajo and yeah. my mom was mixed. Um, my mom was, um, in nursing school growing up. Um, she worked with um, nurses and doctors and we grew up in um, on the hospital compound in Ganado. So we were surrounded by mostly English speakers, but um, my grandparents were mostly Navajo speaking. Um, so we grew up with both. So for me, I can understand the Navajo language pretty well. I can speak it um, for the most part, but as my sibling with my youngest, my youngest brother, 
is more of an English speaker. So he struggles a little bit with the Navajo. So. What about on the reservation in general? Do you feel like it's um, speaking Navajo, has that held on pretty strongly? Or do you feel like it's dissipating over time? It's becoming more and more English and less, or has it been preserved pretty well over time? Um. Oh, gosh. I would say it's it's making a comeback. You know, mm. we, I feel like in the last, um, I, I don't know, the last six to eight years, it seems like there's been more, um, you see more of the young people taking pride in who they are, where they come from, That's and cool. they are making an effort to speak the language more. Um you know, you might get a, a different opinion from somebody else on that, but that's what I'm seeing. Yeah. Um, you just see more of the young people taking, making more of an effort to learn the language and and to be proud of who they are. And did you, I read that you, um, you said you got into running because your dad was running, right? You watched him run. And, and so how did he get into running? Um. I would say, uh, let's see, he, uh, so I, let's see, so his parents, my dad comes from a, a very big family, and I think he's one of the youngest, the youngest, um, so he's, I think he's the second or third to the youngest child in yeah. the family lineup. Uh, he, his parents didn't have a car, um, so they had to do everything by horse or um, they had to run. So um, my dad tells um, tells us the story, tells the stories of when, you know, his mom would send him to the post office. And mm. they lived about four to six miles outside of town. So he would run into town to check the post office, then check the mail um, and run home. Um, and so he, at a young age, just started running to help his family out. Um, and then he talks about how his sister was, um, about to have a baby and he had to run to the hospital and get the ambulance. Um, so he, he started running at a very young age. And I think he, um, others realized that he had some talent um, he ran in high school. Um, I believe he won state championships with his uh, individually and with his team. And then he, he did. just. I didn't know that. That's really cool. Wait, so do you think that he, so it just started, you think, as running basically for chores, right? And then uh -huh. maybe it was like, okay, it's faster if I just kind of run in. And then over time it was like, this makes me feel better or there was no competitive side till later or was he just, do you feel like, how did it play out? Yeah, I would say that he, uh, well, he's already a very competitive man anyway. <laughs> so I would say that he, um, the competitive side came out right away when he decided to join the cross country team um, in high school. And I think that just carried on to junior college. He ran for Haskell and then he kept running and then he tried to qualify for the Olympic trials in the eighties. Um, but he, you know, for, um, a lot of my very young life, um, he was training pretty seriously and, um, you know, um, he, my mom was working in a nursing school and 
Um, he was home with us as pretty much as a, a stay-at-home dad and training at the same time. So um, my dad definitely has a, he um, is very competitive. He's a very hard worker. And um, I just um, saw him train and push himself um, when I was very young. And I remember uh, watching him do workouts on a dirt track in my hometown. And my sister and I would play on the grass while he did, I don't know, quarters or mile repeats or something. Um, <laughs> but, but we watched him do workouts. You know, we just, that was just um, the norm and going to races on weekend. You know, that was um, what, what I remember. It was just so self-learning. Yeah, oh, yeah. So you guys had... So there was a cross country team even when he was growing up, um, and and a dirt track. So there was, you did have that exposure to to sport growing up, even in his generation. Oh yeah, yeah we had a yeah we had a yeah. There's a couple of tracks in our in our hometown. I think there's just one now. There used to be two, but there's one, both dirt tracks. What was your exposure to like pop culture and sports and? Like, what was your awareness growing up of, of the Olympics and, and that stuff? Did you see a lot of that or was it just, um, yeah, I'm just curious. Um, yeah, I watched, um, uh, definitely watched the Olympics. Um, so my mom is, um, she, I mean, at a young age, I, I, I really appreciate this now, but when I was, um, young, she would always, you know, uh, plant these seeds in my head or these ideas in my head uh, for thing with things that I could possibly and potentially do in the future. So she would, you know, um, she and my dad would like turn the Olympics on. And my mom was an athlete too. She played junior college basketball and uh, volleyball, and she's pretty athletic and competitive herself. So you have like my parents who are both competitive and they're watching the Olympics and they're just like getting really competitive, um, you know, with, with just the participants and, you know, we grew up with that. So, you know, we watched the Olympics and, you know, and even when we were watching TV, my mom would say, you know, if you keep training hard, if you keep working hard, you mm. could, be, you could be there. That could be you. So, oh, wow. um, so even at a really young age, she was already um, planting those ideas in my head. Um, wow. You know, and, and at the same time, my parents were also pursuing their goals and working towards their own personal goals. So I think the combination of that um, was really important for my siblings and I to see, you know, yeah. and to this day, they still do that. You know, my mom is still pushing herself and still challenging herself and she wants to be a CEO now. And um, so... I mean and I feel like, you know, I feel like that's, you know, it challenges us um, as their children to kind of push ourselves too. So. And then you mentioned, I was reading somewhere, maybe it was women's running. You talked about the coming of age ceremony and how maybe that was influential um, in developing, you know, into a runner a professional runner. So talk a little bit about 
about that, if you don't mind. I'd love to hear how it works and, and why you think that had an impact too. Uh, so the Navajos, um, so we're, well, I'm a pretty traditional Navajo. I come from a traditional uh, family. Mm-hmm. So um, we have a coming, in our culture, we have a coming of age ceremony. That's when a young girl um, reaches puberty. And um, so it's a four-day ceremony. And it's a, it's a ceremony where um, a young girl is officially... Um, she has she she's a woman at that point so we have um the navajo culture has a four-day ceremony where they invite uh female mentors and teachers to um to teach this young woman um you know how to take care of their their bodies how to take care of themselves mentally physically and spiritually and they in those it's a four-day ceremony so in those four days you know um, there's teachings to run to physically take care of yourself. Um, That's part of it. So, like literally mm-hmm. running, or just doing stuff physically to take care of yourself. Um, uh, running and stretching. So, wow. like running with the running part, um, the girl will run three times a day towards the east, towards the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, and every time that they run, they have to go a little bit farther each time. So on the last morning, the morning of the fourth day, um, that would be her longest run. Um, so she'll, so the, the, and it's, it's to build endurance. Um, and the girl cannot stop. She has to keep running and she, she, that teaches her to push herself and endure hardship. And sometimes it's really hot when they run, depending on the time of year that they have the ceremony. So, you know, the running part of that teaches the young girl to deal with, you know, discomfort, to push herself, um, to, um, you know, stay physically fit, healthy. um, And that's something, those teachings in that are are, are to be carried on throughout her lifetime to so there, there is a deep connection um, with Native Americans in running. I mean, is that true, or is it is it does it, is running like where does the connection come from, or is it really just part of this ceremony? For is it for boys and girls, and and is it just specifically this ceremony, or do you feel like there is a deeper connection to running just culturally? um throughout history um i i would say that um running is a deeper connection for us culturally um and it it goes back um for generations um you know another another um another way that running is incorporated into the culture is um the teaching of running getting up and running to the east every morning um is, I mean, this is a common teaching, I think, in almost every Navajo household is that um, our, you know, for generations, it, we were told that if you get up before the sun is out, is up, and you run to the east and yell, um, talking God will hear you. So mm-hmm. before the sun comes up, um, 
the deities, the Navajo deities are out. And um, I was taught that if you are out running um, before the sun comes up, when the deities are out and you yell um, and they see you, um, they will bless you. Um, you'll get blessings. You'll be blessed with um, wealth and health and strength and whatever your whatever you need. Um, yeah. And 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 I, you know, that's a teaching that is still carried on to this day. Um, so it's definitely, um, you know, it, that just tells me that running is running has been is a huge part of the culture. And in looking at that a little bit more. Um, in depth, I think, you know, what that teaches you is to get up early and run when you're not wanting to and um, teaching your body to push itself and to be ready and to prepare itself for difficulty and hard times and to keep you healthy. Um, so, and I, and I think that at a time, especially now with COVID, I think that, you know, for, for people that have been taking care of themselves that are aware of their bodies and the importance of taking care of their bodies. I feel like that is um, a teaching that is so important right now with COVID. So that's a great point. That's awesome. Um, you mentioned a little bit about that. I, I read, maybe it was the same interview where you had thought, you maybe had it right potentially you had i think you got tested but you were you made the point along those lines where you're as an athlete and as a runner you're super in tune and aware of changes in your body right oh yeah for sure um i had been exposed to uh, a covid positive um coworker. Yeah. so um yeah i got tested and um i had to wait for i think almost a week before i got my results back and um, I was running a lot at that time and I, I feel like in a way I felt like, you know, I've, I've represented the U S I've run at the highest level in the sport that you can run at. And, you know, I feel like, you know, in preparing for those big competitions and training for years, um, I'm so in tuned with my body. I know, um, I know, I know if something is wrong. I know if something is off based on on how runs feel and how my body feels. So when I got tested, I would run every day. I would do some workouts and I would feel fine. I would feel great. <laughs> that was like my, um, that gave me peace of mind that I didn't have COVID. Um, so <laughs> kind of a test. And then that's like how I figured out I was pregnant too. I, I Pretty much. I knew like I figured out, I mean, we found out early on that I was pregnant and it was because I knew something was off. I felt a little bit different. <laughs> so, and I think, you know, it's, that's, that's kind of what sport does too, is it teaches you how to, you know, notice those little changes. Yeah. Yeah. I think the flip side though, like, especially we're both coaches too. And the flip side is like trying to get someone to, listen to their body right so i think mm -hmm. feel like runners i always remember the the park ranger in the grand canyon when we first took um participants of the retreat into the canyon and the ranger was like oh no here comes a bunch of runners 
And I was like, why does this guy, oh, he must not like how runners kind of whip through around the hikers. And then he was like, you know, you runners, you feel like you're invincible. He's like, we end up pulling you out of the canyon the most. Um, And I was like, oh, that's a good point. And um, so I feel like with COVID, it's, I I, I worry sometimes that runners just feel like, uh, it's not really going to impact me. I'm super fit, you know? So, or it's like, or they get it. And then it's like, well, I don't want to miss too much training and, and they're not, they should be taking at least a few weeks off. Right. And, and being very careful yeah. about when they come back. Um, so that's always my concern. It's just like, we're very in tune with our body, but oftentimes we don't listen to it, you know? Oh gosh. Yeah. Tell me about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. With being pregnant right now, it's, it's such a, um, it's, you know, I, I feel like my body feels so different right now. And some days it's, you know, I, I have a, I have a freak out. <laughs> I'm like, I am eating way more than I should, or, you know, I miss training and pushing myself at a, at a, yeah. a high level. And, but then, you know, I have to be really careful and it's, you know, um, and it's hard sometimes to just say, okay, I, 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 it's okay to walk home. <laughs> it's okay to walk home from even, you know, it's okay to walk during this run. And, um, you know, some days I just, I feel like I'm just eating all day and I'm just like, Oh my gosh, I'm a dietitian. I should not be, you know, and th- th- and that's hard. And I have to, you know, tell myself it's okay. I'm, yeah. I'm in a different space. And yeah. right now I'm having a baby, like, you know, it's, it's teaching myself to be okay with that. That's, I feel like that's, that's also a difficult part of being, you know, um, of being, of being an elite. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> it's hard to let go of that. Um, exactly. and, uh, no, I get that. Um, so it's very clear how you got into the sport. What an incredible setting um, that you grew up in, in terms of just the environment and then um, the incredible influences of your parents and culturally that connection to running. It's amazing. So you, you found success and then what was the transition like into college? So it was Adam state first, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I went to Adam state for a year. Yeah. So how did you end up at Adams State and what was that transition like um, now moving out off the reservation and then uh, competing in college? Um, so I went to Adams State because they were a top ranked program in the country. Um, uh, Adams State is located in Alamosa, Colorado. And at the time, uh, Joe Vigil was out there. Uh, Dina Castor was training there. Um, Adam State just had dominant cross-country teams uh, in the country for Division II. Um, and I had just heard so many good things about the program there growing up. My cousin Alfonso Curley ran for Adam State. Um, he was a he was a part of their one of their national championship teams, and and then there was also a Native American. Um, there was a couple of Native American runners that went to Adams State, and they just had success there. And being Native American and dreaming big um, at the time, that was that was the place to be, and that's why I went there. Um, and I and I did. I had a really good um, first 
year of college, I was a part of their national uh, championship team. Um, I made it to nationals for indoor track. Um, I struggled outdoors. Um, yeah, I had a really good coach. Damon Martin was was a really good coach, and I I was really glad that I was able to work with him. So what so was I, your, yeah yeah no go ahead sorry. Oh, I was going to say I just um, I, I really had a good experience um, for running my first year in college. You did. So what was the how much were you running in high school? Did besides your dad, did you have much direction in terms of training, workouts, mileage, or was it just kind of just for the love of running and you just kind of did what you did? Uh, my coach, James Lujan, uh, he ran for Coach Joe V. Hill. He was also a runner at Adam State. He ran for Adam uh, State. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and uh, Coach Lujan, um, he knew all about the VDOT and, or the, the max VO2. And he just trained us. Um, I feel like he just knew what he was doing because he had these charts and these graphs. And oh, so he was um, using, did you realize later that he was using Jack stuff? Is that right? Like he was, he was using the book or leveraging. Yeah. The book? Wow. Yeah. That's cool. So, and he taught us how to pace. Um, and, um, he, you know, I didn't realize, um, how lucky I was to have a coach like that in high school until later on, yeah. but, um, he knew his stuff and we had a good high school program and, um, yeah. So, uh, um, yeah, he, he was also, um, he also grew up in Alamosa. So there was definitely, um, a wow. lot of direction yeah. um, to go in Alamosa. So what, it wasn't like you jumped, it wasn't like a 20 mile week high schooler jumping into a ton of new mileage and, and struggling. It seemed like pretty seamless, the transition. Yeah, I think I maybe was doing 30 miles a week in high school. And then I probably jumped up to maybe like 50 miles yeah. in in college the first year. So, yeah. So, and then you ended up leaving, what was the the motivating factor to go, you went to Arizona state when? Mm -hmm. uh, my second year of college. Um, I just wanted something bigger. I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> I yeah. just wanted to go to the big city where all the lights were and see, things seemed shinier and better. And <laughs> um, I wanted a change. I grew up in a small town and I was in Alamosa, another small town. And um, <laughs> right. I just, you know, wanted to go to the city at the time. So. Yeah. And then how was the transition in terms of training and coaching? W were there big differences at Arizona State? Oh yeah. It was going from one extreme to the other. And mm. I struggled. I struggled so badly. Um, yeah, I, I just, was it, it was hard. What, uh, can everything you pinpoint, like, yeah. Can you pinpoint some of the factors that, you know, where you think it, it fell off there? Was it partly the environment? Was it partly um, environment meaning, I'm assuming now you're training in much hotter climate, but you were probably used to that, right? Um, but a little bit differently, right? Gosh. Um, 
I was not used to the weather. The weather was definitely yeah. a big factor. We had uh, practice every morning at like five thirty, six o'clock, and it was still hot. Um, I missed the changing of the seasons. Um, uh, and then I just, you know, I wasn't used to training in the city. I was used to being out alone in the wilderness um, on dirt trails. And I was running on dirt, on paved sidewalks. Um, for a yeah. lot of the time I was running, you know, we, it seemed like we did the same route every day in Tempe. I was not <laughs> used to that. <laughs> uh, Any injuries not, when you, when you moved there? What was that? Any injuries when you changed um, to Arizona state? Yeah, I had tons of injuries. I had a lot mm. of lower leg issues. Um, I just, you know, I'd never been injured. Um up to that point and I was just getting injured all the time and it was just I think psychologically just it, it wasn't a good fit yeah. um I just struggled I just you know I had to work I um, worked with a psychologist to try to figure things out and it just it just didn't click like you know some parts of my college experience did but you know I did I did well academically but running it just it, it just it was just harder there so. yeah so do you do you think that um well interesting i hear this so often that when when we have these conversations a lot of times i'm like looking for like that the ingredient or like what was it uh, when it comes down to training but oftentimes it's just environment like is the athlete happy are they in a place where they're comfortable? It's not like, oh, they had magic workouts, you know, at and <laughs> this program versus the other. It's just I was not. I was training in an environment I wasn't comfortable in. Or um, I'm assuming you ran more on the roads, being in the city. So maybe mm -hmm. was that related to the lower leg injuries, or or did you drastically increase mileage, or um, do you think it was just overall stress? Um, you know, not just not being comfortable in this new environment. I think it was overall stress, not being comfortable yeah. in that environment. You know, um, there were girls who were significantly faster at ASU and it was, you know, that mm. inner, um, pressure I was putting on myself to try to keep up. And in that I was probably training too hard or pushing myself too hard. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a, a rocky relationship with the coach, um, yeah. You know, I had been so used to coaches that were, you know, warm and welcoming and mm. uh, approachable. And I felt that was a lot harder at ASU. And, you know, I, I felt like I wasn't able to fully express what was going on with me at the time. And I think that hurt me, too, that I wasn't able to be honest about, you know, how a workout really felt or how I was really feeling. Um, so it was, it was a lot of things, you know, and, and, yeah. um, and I, yeah, it was just, so it was, you, it was and, and Alvina, you were bachelors of science and nutrition, right? When you yeah. were at ASU? Yeah. And that's mm -hmm. what you graduated. Yes. Yes. I, um, I'm a dietitian. Yeah. Yeah. And do you feel like, um, do you feel like your time there? So obviously you finished at Arizona state and you went on to compete professionally. 
was was the desire to keep going and and participate even though you had a, a rough few years there was it was it motivated by the fact that um you still wanted to see what you could do putting yourself in a better place so in that in that sense like was the even though you had a negative experience did that kind of lead you to continue versus just say okay i'm done with the sport you know i'm burned out was was it you know how did you make that jump to continue and what were the motivating factors uh so after I graduated, I had to stay in um, Phoenix, uh, Tempe for another year to complete an internship. Yeah. And during that year, I, I just I ran on my own and um, I just, you know, was a lo- did a lot of runs on my own and just thought and, you know, realized that, you know, I'm still running even though I'm not training for anything. You know, what does this mean? And I, you know. I think for me growing up and for as long as I can remember, I'm always thinking about um, new goals and um, things that I want to do and accomplish. So, you know, I'm like, I'm done with college. I finished my four years of college running. What do I want to do now? And then just, you know, the trials kept coming up. Um, I kept thinking about how I wanted to always qualify for the Olympic trials. And, you know, I thought at the time, I'm like, my best shot is the marathon. I think I can run under 245. Why did um, you think that just you felt like that was a softer standard or you felt like you're best suited for the marathon? Or both? Um, I, I think, yeah, I would say that I probably thought that the marathon was softer. Yeah. Um, and I and I grew, you know, in ASU, I felt like I I just, you know, I was so discouraged, you know, I didn't accomplish any of the big running goals that I had at ASU. So I felt discouraged. I, did, I felt like I didn't have the speed. I didn't, you know, it was, it, it was now getting injured. You know, there was a lot of things that discouraged me. Um, but with the marathon, I'm like, well, you know, I think I could run around six minute pace for this long. And, you know, I, I think I can do this. So what, you, what had you run at ASU? What was, do you feel was your best performance at that point when you left? I think school? it was probably a 10 K I did the 10 K and I think I ran like 34 minutes. Okay. So and you just to geek. 30, geek yeah. yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. So to geek out like as a VDOT geek, um, 34, 10 K. So equivalent would be two thirty-seven marathon. So for sure, you had every right to be confident at that point, right? To to mm-hmm. make the standard. Okay, cool. So you, yeah. so that was um, that was sort of the catalyst, like goal oriented. You felt like two forty five. I can I can get that, and then that's what you were shooting for from then on. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then it, it seemed like uh, once I left Tempe, uh, so after call after. Um, I completed my internship. Um, I moved back to Ganado and I, I worked at the hospital there and it seemed like once I went back home and I was in a, in a mountainous or just a different area. Um, it just seemed like my running, um, flourished. I got home to Ganado and I was running like 80 miles a week and I was in a hundred and I was like, Oh my God, like, 
you know, I never thought I could run this and I'm not hurt. Nothing hurts. (laughs) And it just seemed like once I was in a different environment, um, things just running, things just came around, like running just, it it just felt easier and I wasn't getting injured. And, um, it just started to, to come back, you know, that's awesome. And then when did the N the N seven program with Nike, how did that come about? Um, and tell us a little bit about that. I'm not sure. Does it still exist today? Um, and what were some of the goals with, with this program? Yeah. Um, N seven, it does still exist. Um, so that came up, I think in 2008 or nine, Mm-hmm. Eight, yeah, nine or 10, 2009 or 10. Uh, so I was getting ready for the 2012 Olympic trials and I didn't have a sponsor and I had just run um, 237 in the marathon at the PF Chang's Phoenix marathon. And I, I got my A standard for the Olympic trials um, out of the way. And it was a, at the time it was, um, I think one of the best in, times in the country at that time. Mm. And it was early on. So um, I had that time under my belt. And then um, I, I can't remember how it came up, but uh, Sam McCracken from Nike N7, he's the general manager, reached out to me and he asked me if I was, you know, interested in um, representing N7. And of course, I jumped at the, at the um, opportunity yeah. Uh, so what N7 is, is um, it's a part of Nike and they come out with um, different products, um, Native American inspired products, um, a collection twice a year. They have a summer collection and a winter fall collection and the proceeds from um, those clothes in the collection go into a fund. And that N7 fund funds programs um, that help um, Native American programs um, that promote physical health and um, and a healthy eating, uh, physical activity. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's a good program. They help a lot of Native com- Native American communities, and and that's important because a lot of um, Native American communities struggle with diabetes and uh, health issues. So, you know, if you have a program that promotes health and fitness um, in these small communities, that goes a long way. So they sponsored you and, and part of the sponsorship was was also um, promoting fitness and, and healthy eating. It's what a great match um, mm-hmm. as a dietitian too, which is which is pretty cool as a coach because you have now you've got the nursing and dietitian and um, you've worked with so many coaches, right? So, some amazing coaching influences um, mm-hmm. as an athlete that you've kind of um, accrued there. So it's pretty cool. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, so N7 still exists and that's pretty cool. How long has it been going on with Nike? Do you know? Um, the, the N7 program. Yeah. You had said what, is it 15, 20 years or longer? Uh, I think they've been, um, I think I'm 
the early 2000s was when they got started and I've been with them since 2009 or 10. Okay. So yeah, they, they've you, been you, you still do work with them now, Alvin? Um, a little bit. Um, yeah. yeah, I feel like once I started nursing school and, um, once I, um, I stepped back from racing because of nursing school, I feel like that's, that hasn't been as, um, um, I haven't been as involved as I, um, I haven't been as involved with the program. Nursing school took up a lot of uh, time yeah. and energy. So, uh, <laughs> some things had to go on the back burner and that was, that was one of them. Yeah. I'm seeing it with my wife now. Overwhelming <laughs> it is. It's oh, like, gosh. oh yeah. The amount of information that they're squeezing in in such a short time is pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so 237, just tell us a little bit for all our marathon listeners, um, who was coaching you at that time and, and what did training look like leading up to it? Was, was your, and what were your goals you know, for the marathon around that point? Um, I, at the time I was working or I was on the McMillan elite team, I was by Greg McMillan. Um, I can't remember the, um, I don't even think, you know, we, we weren't really planning to do the PF Chang's marathon. Um, I was, um, I had worked with him for a little bit up to PF Chang's and we were just trying to figure out, you know, what what would work for me and what wasn't. And, um, I think that winter I was getting ready. I was, um, there was a women's team. I was a part of the women's team and we were getting ready for club nationals. He, we had a club team and, um, we were getting ready for nationals and it just seemed like my fitness was farther along than we had, we had thought it was. And I just started nailing workouts and, um, uh, just seemed like uh, the fitness was there. I was strong. Um, and we knew that we had to take advantage of that um, just because I had been struggling um, with just trying to get fit and yeah. um, trying to get to that point. So we had to take advantage of the fitness and the strength and the good workouts that I was doing. So um, Greg suggested that I um, you know, just, we, we do PF chains and, um, yeah, workouts were just, um, coming along so well. I was, um, finishing these big workouts that I had struggled with. Um, so yeah, so the confidence was there. Um, I went into PF chains and, and ran 237. So I was, I was pretty excited about that. That's cool. And then does the 32, 34, 10 K, does that come later? Was was there a greater emphasis at that point? Were you shooting for the the trials on the track when you ran that 10K? Because that performance, I think, I was just looking at your PRs, and it seems like that 10K, maybe that was your best distance. That was the, I mm-hmm. think, your top performance according to to Jack's mm-hmm. tables and the VDOC calculator, that yeah. 33, 34, 10K. Uh, so, um, so I did the 237 early, I think that was in 2000, it was way before 2012. Cause I did that 32, 34 in 2012. Gotcha. Um, so I, after PF Chang's, um, I just struggled. I, I just, you know, I tried to get back to that 237, um, fitness and I, I just had a really hard time. So, um, 
I moved or I looked, changed up coaches and then I went to Oregon and I trained with a coach up there. Um, I stayed there till the 2012 marathon trials. Um, and I moved back to Flagstaff. Um, and then once, when I came back to Flagstaff, um, and it's interesting. So I moved back to Flagstaff in February or March of 2012. And I started working with Trina Painter. Um, Mm -hmm. She was Greg McMillan's assistant coach. And um, so the coach that I had worked with in Oregon um, emphasized speed. And that was something that he felt like I was lacking. So a lot of the um, workouts that I was doing in Portland was really focused on speed um, and and form because um, I had done the strength, like the strength training or the miles were there. I had a ton of miles under me, um, but mm. the, just the speed wasn't quite there. So when I uh, worked with Trina, <clears throat> um, she was able to um, incorporate a little bit more, some speed or she, I don't know, she created some programs that just seemed to work out really well for me. Wow. Uh, and that to early, all of 2012, it was just, it was like that dream year where everything mm. just seemed to come together. The workouts were coming together. Um, you know, I had done so much strength training leading up to the 2012 marathon. Um, I was working with a personal trainer. I was still, um, I was pretty strong. So when I came back to Flagstaff, I feel like, you know, the strength and the work that I had done in Portland and then uh, Mm. Tina's coaching and her, her positive attitude and her positive outlook. You know, I think that all came together for me in a really good way to have the dream racing year in 2012. And that's when I ran the 32-34. Nice. That makes sense. That's great to hear how it all kind of came together for you. So, I mean, working with all these, um, these coaches, what have you learned most? What are the biggest takeaways for you as an athlete and working with these different coach influencers when you work with your own athletes? Is there anything that stands out that sort of guides your approach now when you work with athletes? You know, you said something earlier that I think pretty much um, says it all is that, you know, you want to be in a place where you're comfortable Um, You want to be around people that um, are going to push you in a healthy way and that are going to, you know, um, I I think uh, your environment plays a big role in that because I feel like any, every time that I had success in running, it was when I was in an environment when I um, felt that I felt was healthy and positive and I was happy. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. Um, and then you can work with the best coaches in the, in the world, in the country, but if you don't have that, um, connection with them, or if you, if you can't talk to your coach honestly and, um, comfortably, then, you know, you might not get the results you want or you're looking for. So, you know, your environment, the people you surround yourselves, I think yourself with makes a huge difference. 
Yeah, and it's so hard. I think that that's what makes our current situation hard is that it's everyone's stressed out, obviously, and there's no racing or it's very limited racing at the moment. And I think it's important for athletes to kind of think a little bit about why they run. Is it just to, you know, set PRs or to, you know, reach certain time goals? And how does it express their values? And um, so that it's a difficult, right, for people to kind of find that space today as everyone's mm-hmm. anxious. And um, so hopefully coaches, you know, can can help guide athletes and, and keep them motivated and and focus more on what's important, right? Not just doing it to, to reach a time goal. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Sure. Yeah. No, that's, that's important. You know, right now I, I'm working from home. I'm not able to, you know, I'm away from my running friends and Flagstaff. I'm just home with my dogs all the time now. Um, my significant other works all day. So I'm just home with the dogs. I get frustrated. I get lonely. And, you know, as, as I get far along into this pregnancy and it's getting harder to run, you know, I still get out there to run because it's the only yeah. thing that I have left that makes me feel normal. That makes me feel good. It keeps me healthy. And, you know, I, I definitely appreciate that I, that, you know, I can still run and that I'm still able to, you know, even though I have to take walk breaks now and <laughs> I'm not running as fast. I'm just grateful to be out there and to just, you know. So those walk breaks, though you're still doing interval training with the walking breaks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did hill repeats and then I took a walk break. It was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm like doing weird like workout stuff right now. <laughs> when is the baby due? Uh, we're due uh, November 24th. Oh, so. cool. It's, we're excited for you. So Thank excited. You. Um, all right, Alvina, thanks so much for spending time with us and sharing. Yeah, no problem. It's good to talk to you, Brian. Of course. All right, take care. Be safe. I hope your family stays safe, and uh, we'll talk soon. All right, here. thank you.